Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce the moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And this is a partnership between the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network and Cancer Care. And we're delighted to be partnering with them on this program. And there will also be a part two to this program for caregivers. And today's program is titled Bladder Cancer Treatment Updates. And it's part one of Life with Bladder Cancer. And today's program is supported by EMD Serrano. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, we have um, wonderful speakers on the program today. We also have wonderful participants on the program. We have over 222 participants on this call today, and you come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, Nigeria, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well, and we really want to welcome all of you, and thank you for spending the next hour with us. Now, before I introduce our first speaker, I'm just going to ask all of you a few questions, um, and it'll take about two minutes, and it'll give us a sense of what you know before the program starts. It'll help us as we plan future programs to be sure that they're tailored to meet your needs. And for those of you who are live streaming, you'll be able to see the questions as I read them, and you'll be able to rate the questions as well. On a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the current standard of care for bladder cancer, including staging and grading in the context of COVID-19. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand new and emerging treatment approaches for metastatic bladder cancer, including targeted treatments and immunotherapy. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the role of diagnostic technologies and precision medicine for metastatic bladder cancer in predicting response to treatment. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. I understand how to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain for bladder cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. I understand the role of clinical trials for bladder cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank all of you for participating in these questions. It really helps us again moving forward as we plan future programs. And now it's really my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Song Zhao. And Dr. Zhao is a medical oncologist, um, Medical Oncology Department, Swedish Cancer Institute. And Dr. Sal will be addressing a number of topics, an overview of bladder cancer, including staging and grading, and current standard of care, new treatment approaches for metastatic bladder cancer, clinical trial updates, the role of diagnostic technologies and precision medicine, targeted treatments in the emerging role of immunotherapy, 
predicting response to treatment, communicating with healthcare team about quality of life concerns, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of and prepared list of questions. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Zhao. Thank you, Dr. Nesman. Hello, everyone. Um, I would like to thank organizers for inviting me to speak in this event. Today, I will share with you current standard of care for, for bladder cancer. Because of time constraint, I may not cover every aspect of this very broad topic. First of all, let me start with the overview of bladder cancer. Bladder cancer is one of the most common cancers. It's eighth common, eighth most common can, uh, cause of cancer mortality among men. The most common type of bladder cancer is urethelial carcinoma, which accounts for 90% of all bladder cancers. Patients with bladder cancer often present with symptoms such as blood in the urine, pain with urination, and urinary frequency or urgency. And for those reasons, they are often refer to urologists for evaluation. Diagnosis of bladder cancer is based on urine test, cystoscopy, and biopsy. The treatment options for bladder cancer are dictated by stage and grade. Bladder cancer staging is based on how far the cancer has grown into the tissue of the bladder, whether the cancer involves lymph nodes near the bladder or whether the cancer has spread beyond the bladder to other organs. The grade of bladder cancer refers to how abnormal the cancer cell appear under the microscope. This is usually assessed by, the his, uh, by pathologist. Bladder tumors are classified as either low or high grade. Low grade cancers can recur, but very rarely they would invade. High grade cancers are more likely to recur and become invasive. At the first step of staging, surgeons, urologists, need to perform a cystoscopy and the surgeon may remove the tumor as much as possible. This procedure is called TURBT, which stands for transurethral resection of bladder tumor. An important goal of TURBT is to ascertain whether the cancer has invaded into the muscle layer of the bladder. If the tumor does not invade into the blood in the muscle layer of the bladder, it is called non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. If the cancer, however, has grown into the muscle layer of the bladder, it will be called muscle invasive bladder cancer. This dis distinction is very, very important since treatment choices of non-muscle invasive bladder cancer and muscle invasive bladder cancer are quite different. Approximately 70% of newly diagnosed bladder cancer are not muscle invasive. The initial treatment for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer is TURBT. This is often followed by additional therapy, including chemotherapy infused into the bladder or BCG. Intravascular or intrabladder chemotherapy and BCG reduce the chance of cancer recurrence. Cystoscopy, which means surgical removal of entire bladder, or partially removed the bladder, is reserved for persistent bladder cancer despite of TURBT. And also despite of uh, intravascular BCG or chemotherapy. 
Now, on the other hand, treatment for muscle-invasive bladder cancer is more aggressive. It is because muscle-invasive bladder cancer is associated with high risk of metastasis or potentially death. The most important treatment for muscle-invasive bladder cancer is surgery, specifically radical cystectomy and uh, removal of the lymph nodes adjacent to the bladder. It should be noted that only approximately 50% of the patients with muscle-invasive bladder cancer are cured by surgery alone. There have been numerous studies demonstrating treating muscle-invasive bladder cancer with chemotherapy prior to surgery, improved outcome, and increased chance of cure. Therefore, the combination of chemotherapy followed by surgery has been established as the standard care for muscle-invasive bladder cancer. For most of patients, the preoperative chemotherapy is reserved for patients who are healthy enough to tolerate this more aggressive treatment. In some cases, chemotherapy may be given after surgery instead of before surgery, and patients generally have a better chance to tolerating or completing chemotherapy before the surgery than doing it after. For the patients who are not a candidate for surgery, or decline surgery for whatever reason, concurrent chemotherapy and radiation, or radiation alone sometimes can be considered for those patients. Chemotherapy on concurrent and concurrent radiation should be performed after TURBT. Please keep in mind the risk of cancer relapse after concurrent chemotherapy and radiation may be slightly higher than surgery. Therefore, surgery is still considered the best standard of care available for those patients. Ideally, of course, combined with chemotherapy prior to surgery. For full staging of bladder cancer, we often need imaging studies. Imaging studies such as CT or MRI are used to detect not only abnormal uh, tissue or masses along the urinary bladder or urinary tract, including kidney, ureter, and bladder, but also uh, used to detect enlarged lymph nodes, as well as distal spread uh, into the other visceral organs. There is some evidence suggesting PET-CT may be better than CT or MI alone in detecting bladder cancer metastases. Therefore, PET-CT could be considered in some patients if we have high suspicion for distal spread. If bladder cancer spread to multiple lymph nodes or other visceral organ or bones, it is called metastatic bladder cancer. Systemic therapy is the standard care for metastatic bladder cancer. Options of systemic therapy including chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and the targeted therapy. Historically, metastatic bladder cancer has been treated with chemotherapy. However, over the last few years, we have seen some exciting new development of treatment options, including immune checkpoint inhibitor, infrotimide reddotin, and targeted therapy, specifically an inhibitor targeting FGFR mutation called erdofrednet. Before I expand more on those new treatment options, I would like to point out chemotherapy remains to be the preferred first-line therapy for those patients who are fit and have adequate organ function, including kidney function and heart functions. 
you may ask why we still rely on chemotherapy in this days of age, given all the advances we have made in understanding biology and genetic change in bladder cancer. The answer is quite simple. Compared to all the other treatment options available to us at this time, cisplatin-based chemotherapy is more effective, has a higher chance of response rate, and rarely can, can, can be curative. In other words, a higher percentage of uh, patients respond to cisplatin-based chemotherapy compared to other type of therapy available. For example, over 50% of patients respond to cisplatin-based chemotherapy, while only less than 30% of people would respond to immune therapy. Rarely, as I mentioned, patients with metastases in lymph nodes or even lungs can be cured with chemotherapy itself. The high response rate to chemotherapy can be explained by presence of DNA repair gene mutation in bladder cancer. A study from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center a while back found a significant percentage of bladder cancer patients have mutations in DNA repair genes, such as BRCA1 and BRCA2. There has been abundant evidence showing cisplatin or carboplatin can cause DNA damage in cancer cells. Therefore, bladder cancer cells with DNA repair gene mutations are more susceptible to those two agents. Therefore, in this sense, cisplatin and carboplatin could be considered as a target therapy by targeting DNA repair gene mutations in bladder cancer. An old-fashioned way, we may say. Um, chemotherapy is, however, associated with significant side effects and it's important to determine if the patient is fit enough for uh, chemotherapy. Up to 50% of patients with advanced bladder cancer are not a candidate for cisplatin-based chemotherapy because of poor functional status or coexisting medical conditions. For those patients, immunotherapy will be more appropriate. Several immune checkpoint inhibitors have been approved by FDA for treatment of advanced bladder cancer. They work through directly activating patients' immune system to attack cancer cells. Immune checkpoint inhibitors are effective only in 20 to 30% of patients, as I said. Nevertheless, among those who do respond to those treatments, we have seen some durable response in some patients. Immunotherapy is also the preferred second-line treatment option if cancer has progressed on cisplatin-based chemotherapy. In this setting, a high level of pdl one expression is associated with a higher probability of responding to treatment. Therefore, a pdl one expression level can be used as a predictive marker for response to immunotherapy when it comes to second-line treatment. If the cancer has progressed on both chemotherapy and immunotherapy, the third-line treatment option would include infotimab vedotin and avifertinib. Oftentimes, at this point, I would order genetic testing prior to making a decision of treatment. If genetic testing reveals presence of FGFR2 or FGFR3 mutation, I would recommend erdofertinib, which is the inhibitor targeting those mutations. If no FGFR mutation was found, I would recommend 
at the front end by Dotin. I'm sorry, in Fortimab by Dotin. In Fortimab by Dotin is a so-called antibody drug conjugate. It is composed of an antibody targeting a molecule called Mactin-4 and linked with a chemotherapy drug. This molecule, Mactin-4, is found on the surface of nearly all bladder cancer cells. Therefore, infortimab and dotin can be considered a target therapy specifically for bladder cancer. Another antibody drug conjugate called sesotuzumab govatecan has recently approved by FDA for bladder cancer that has progressed on chemotherapy and immunotherapy. Because the side effects uh, of sesotuzumab govatecan are more significant than infortimab and dotin, I usually reserve that uh, as a later uh, option uh, for those patients. I have already mentioned immunotherapy as a standard care for patients with advanced bladder cancer who are not a candidate for chemotherapy or progressed on chemotherapy. Over the last few years, use of immunotherapy has expanded further. Pembrolizumab, an immune checkpoint inhibitor, has been approved for treating patients with localized, non-muscle-invasive bladder cancer that are no longer responding to intravascular BCG therapy. Recently, a phase three, phase three trial showing nivolumab, another immune checkpoint inhibitor, lowering risk of cancer recurrence after radical cystamine for uh, muscle invasive bladder cancer. Therefore, this is a new development uh, for patients who have uh, surgery, including uh, chemotherapy followed by surgery for muscle invasive bladder cancer if they still have significant disease uh, at a time of surgery, the immunotherapy such as nivolumab should be considered. I should also mention that immunotherapy, abalimab has been approved for, as maintenance drug for uh, after cisplatin or carboplatin-based chemotherapy in patients with more advanced uh, stage four bladder cancer. Uh, abalimab in this setting has shown to prolong survival. For the next few minutes, I'm going to talk about communication between patients and providers on quality of life issues. Combating bladder cancer is a serious challenge to the patient, not only physically but also mentally. As we know, chemotherapy can cause a number of side effects, including fatigue, poor appetite, nausea, constipation, neuropathy, hearing loss, and affect the kidney and causing infections. This is uh, important to know that, um, to let, you, let your doctor, uh, provider to know how this side effects affect you. Sometimes I would consider reducing the dose of the chemotherapy or holding chemotherapy altogether to give my patient a time to recover. If any side effect, for example, neuropathy, becomes so significant that it affects patient's ability of performing activity of daily living, uh, including writing, holding utensils, um, I would recommend discontinuing treatment or change of treatment regimen. Sometimes IV fluid hydration, intravenous fluid hydration can be especially benefit for patients with poor oral intake. Dietitian or nutrition consultant 
uh, can be quite useful in this setting for a patient uh, to learn how to deal with those challenges. Although immunotherapy is generally better tolerated than chemotherapy, they also may cause a number of side effects, such as fatigue, skin rash, diarrhea, joint pain, and muscle ache. And rarely it can cause serious inflammation in the lung, kidney, and liver. It is important to keep your provider informed so some reaction can be taken properly before those side effects become quite serious. When we do not reduce the dose of immunotherapy as we do uh, with chemotherapy, we, we can often hold the treatment for a few weeks and reassess. At times, we may need to re uh, start steroids to suppress an uh, overly active immune response elicited by the uh, immunotherapy. For those patients who have had excellent response uh, to immunotherapy, I often consider extended interval between the treatment cycles by a few more weeks. Uh, and therefore, those adjustments can help the patient to enjoy a better quality of life and uh, uh, reduce the treatment fatigue. Lastly, I would spend some time to talk about the increasing role of telehealth or telemedicine appointments. The COVID-19 pandemic has had a very, very profound impact on cancer care that we're still trying to understand at this time. It has been estimated over one-third of Americans may have missed recommended cancer screening during the pandemic. Inevitably, the pandemic has resulted in fear and delay in seeking medical care. Implementing telemedicine has turned out to be one of the silver linings during this difficult time. The patients who have completed treatment or on surveillance, telemedicine with virtual video visit um, are really advantageous uh, over uh, in-person visit. First of all, it is more convenient uh, especially for elderly patients who have difficulty with mobility and transportation. Second, during lockdown and the peak of the pandemic, telemedicine helped us to keep the number of patients in waiting area and in clinic manageable. Therefore, we can lower the risk of COVID-19 transmission uh, among the patient. Lastly, it also allows me to interact with my patients through video and show them uh, blood work and the imaging results by sharing my screen, which is as informative as an in in-person visit uh, if done it properly. For those reasons, I hope the telemedicine will remain available in the future, and I hope it will stay uh, for the foreseeable future. On the other hand, telemedicine may not be the best way to deliver care for patients who are undergoing active treatment or require physical examination or other inpatient care. Access to telemedicine also can be limited by age, language barrier, income, and computer literacy. Many low-income patients do not have access to computer, smartphone, or internet. In fact, analysis has found use of telemedicine is directly correlated, correlated to higher level of household income. Therefore, I hope measure will be taken in the future so that telemedicine 
can be, become more accessible to those patient population that need them. I'll stop here. Um, thank you very much for your attention, and um, I'll be happy to answer any questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Zhao. That was an extraordinary, just a wonderful presentation, and really, you really set the entire stage for the program today and gave people a tremendous amount of um, information in very uh, public-friendly formats. So I think that there will be really great questions for you, but I think you made this very understandable um, for people, and I very appreciate very much appreciate your doing this. Um, um, so thank you. Thank you so much. And um, I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden. Ms. Bearden is an oncology dietitian at the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. And Ms. De Ms. Bearden will be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. And it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. Nutrition and hydration are essential, um, not only in the tolerance to your treatment, but providing you the energy to do the things that you enjoy. Now, during your treatment, your diet might be modified um, based on how you're tolerating the treatment, based on your unique um, healthcare needs. And so each patient is seen as an individual, and it's so important that you connect with your healthcare team and ask questions about your unique needs. So some of the potential side effects um, that you might experience include things like mouth sores, diarrhea, constipation, maybe a change in taste and smell, potentially nausea and vomiting, maybe decreased appetite and fatigue. During your course of treatment, your nutritional needs can change. Um, <clears throat> Oftentimes, just based on the type of treatment that you're receiving, each patient may have a different course, and so um, there might be a time for in increased protein needs, there might be a time for increased calorie needs, and so working closely with your healthcare team is essential in you understanding what your unique needs are. So one way you can do that is meeting with your dietitian. A dietitian is part of your healthcare team and can sit down with you, review your medical record, understand what your unique needs are, any other comorbidities that need to be taken into consideration, and help formulate um, a, a nutrition plan for you to meet whatever nutrition goals that are appropriate. One thing that I always like to, to bring to the table in this conversation is even if you are overweight, you can still become malnourished. Um, there's a big misconception around weight and nourishment. And um, when nutritional needs are not met, the body starts to use protein and muscle for energy. Um, in this, we see this more often in patients who have a radical weight change, um, and this can happen due to the side effects of the treatment sometimes. And so we want to not go through that radical weight change if we can avoid it. Um, what ends up happening when we start using our muscle as energy is that we're at higher um, risk of falls. There's an increased amount of fatigue that we feel. Our endurance is reduced. And this starts to impact your quality of life. Now, there is a time, um, oftentimes patients are very excited and interested to know how they can modify their diet when they get a diagnosis of cancer. And I, there is a time for addressing this and kind of working through some of those more wellness um, topics, but not while you're going through treatment necessarily. Um, so talking with your healthcare team helps you understand um, exactly where you are with your treatment and what needs to happen during that time. 
Now, side effects are something that can happen, and really talking with your healthcare team is so very important. We may have an idea of potential side effects that can happen, but each patient responds differently to treatment. And the amount of side effect, meaning that one person may feel slightly nauseated, another person might be nauseated around the clock. Please communicate with your healthcare team any changes that you experience and how the inter intervention responds, how you do with whatever they suggest for you. Um, following the directions that the physician gives you with medications for side effects is also important. So make sure you feel comfortable with the information that you're provided during your visit. It's very important that you bring these topics to our attention sooner than later. It helps you not have to go through as much um, time with that side effect, and it helps us help you um, as soon as we can. Maintaining hydration is another component, and hydration oftentimes gets left off the table because we're so very focused on the, the eating and getting the calories and protein in, but dehydration is very, very serious, and it's so very important that you understand um, that each day you need to get at least 8 to 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. Now, these needs may increase and they may decrease just depending on your unique needs, but that's a general guideline. Dehydration can actually enhance the feeling of nausea and fatigue. It can make you have headaches, feel dizzy, um, but just remember anything that's liquid at room temperature is considered a fluid, such as water, milk, sports drinks, juice, um, but again, talking with your healthcare team about your unique needs is, is really so very important. So in closing, there are several members of us here to help you. We want to help you. We want to help your journey um, be as seamless as possible and as comfortable as possible. So communicating with us is the beginning of helping us help you do that. So know your healthcare team and know how to reach out to them. The sooner, the better. Thanks for allowing me to be part of today's workshop. I'm going to pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Drudden. That was really excellent and really gives people a lot of helpful tips about um, um, eating and hydration issues. And I think there will be questions for you definitely during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Bethany Chisholm. And Dr. Chisholm is Director of Education and Research, um, Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, um, uh, BCAN, and they are actually collaborating or actually a partner group on today's program. And Dr. Chisholm will be addressing the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, BCAN's free programs and services, and she'll also be providing how to contact them by phone and their website as well. So it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague and um, partner on today's program, Dr. Chisholm. Thank you, Carolyn. It's always a pleasure to be part of these programs. Beacon has been around since 2005, and we have a comprehensive assortment of free materials for anybody in the bladder cancer community or the people that care about them. Everything from non-muscle invasive, which is the most common type of bladder cancer, to the muscle invasive, and then even advanced and um, metastatic disease. Things like our clinical trials dashboard has the same information that you can get from clinicaltrials.gov, but it's focused on bladder cancer-specific research trials. And you can find trials near you. You can search in other locations, perhaps if you have family or friends who live in another city that you could stay with. 
all these other resources are available to find clinical research trials that could be beneficial in treating your bladder cancer. We have a number of new initiatives that we started this year, including our treatment talk programs, which feature a medical expert talking specifically about a treatment. And what makes them unique is we also include a couple of patients sharing their experiences with those treatments. So it really gives some good insight on that lived experience. Beacon also offers a survivor-to-survivor network. So if you have questions about what would it be like if I had to have immunotherapy or bladder removal surgery, you're able to find out from somebody who's a little bit further along on the journey about what benefited them as they were going through the various treatments. And one of the other new things that we've done, and I encourage everyone to download it, is our new Bladder Cancer Matters podcast, which features a moderator who is very well versed in the research community. He's joined into the research community in a big way, but he's also the proud owner of a 1996 model neobladder, and he always starts every episode talking about that, but he knows what it's like to live with bladder cancer, and we bring in some really fascinating patients as well as medical practitioners and researchers to really highlight for you all the exciting things that are going on in the bladder cancer space. So I encourage everyone to visit us, www.bcan.org, and feel free to sign up for the walk, our big awareness activity in May of 22, coming to cities near you, but also a virtual component. So we hope that you'll join us, and we look forward to helping you. Give us a call. All of our phone numbers and everything is on our website. Thanks so much, Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Chisholm. That was excellent, and what a wonderful resource. So some of you already know about BCAN, but some of you do not. And if you don't and haven't taken advantage of them, the variety of programs they offer is is really enormous. And also they are the only organization that is specific to bladder cancer. So that is really as a nonprofit. So that's a wonderful, um, just a wonderful resource for all of you to um, to really become familiar with and to and to really check out their information. I should mention to all of you that at the end of today's program, or probably tomorrow, you'll be getting a Survey Monkey evaluation, and it will be an evaluation of the program, which we appreciate you filling out. But in there, there will also be any any information we gave out today, um, any telephone numbers, websites, any other information that we think of that even if we didn't mention today that we think that would be useful to you to have, we'll provide that to you. So you'll have um, in addition to that evaluation, you'll be getting a lookout for those resources because it'll be just written out for you very clearly for you to have them. And I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care services, just so you have a sense of the range of services that you can access from cancer care. And between BCAN, in terms of the bladder-specific programs that they offer, and cancer care services, we hope that you'll feel that there's really a lot of resources out there for you, and they're free. That's the other thing I just want to mention, that both BCAN's services and programs and cancer care's programs and services are free. So um, cancer care um, has been in existence for about 78 years. It's a national organization, so um, and it, it helps people throughout the United States. Um, we have something called a Hope Line, where people can call us at a 100 number, 800-813-4673, and speak with one of our oncology social workers. And people call for many different reasons. Um, we do address all different types of cancers. 
and all different types of issues so that uh, many people call and they get, we have a huge amount of information to give to people and also support to give to people. In addition, we do offer online support groups, and we have online support groups on every topic you can imagine um, for both older adults, younger adults, caregivers, um, partners, uh, family members, um, and we also, of course, offer specific types of support groups, particular types of, of cancer, including bladder cancer as well. Um, and we also um, offer practical and financial assistance, um, and we also have what we call a co-pay foundation. So our practical and financial assistance from Cancer Care will help you with things like transportation or home care, um, and our uh, Cancer Care Co-Pay Fa Payment Foundation really helps to pay for the costs of some of your um, treatments, and those um, costs can be quite um, extensive, and those grants are quite large, so that that's going to be very helpful to people as well. Um, in addition to that, we do have a case management program, and for that, we have a team of staff who will actually, if we don't have the resource and um, and we will then virtually take you to an organization um, which we think will have that resource and connect you up. And if they don't have the resource you need, we'll keep connecting you. Sometimes the resource is right in your own hometown. Sometimes it's regional or national. I know many of you are struggling with issues of food insecurity, lots of financial concerns, and just a lot of issues of getting information that you need. And so um, we do have... Um, a very large, uh, a, a very large, um, I would say, database of resources that we can connect you with, and we also connect. We connect with you, so you're not. We're not just giving you a list of places to call on your own, which can be very daunting to people. Um, in addition, we do offer these workshops, and we also have, of course, publications, um, and so that um, so that this is another resource for you as well. Um, and um, so that gives you a snapshot of some of the services that we offer, and you also can visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Now, before we move on to the Q&A section of our program today, I again want to just ask you all just a few questions um, so that we, um, we can get a sense of now where you are with the program in terms of um, now we haven't, the program hasn't ended yet, but, but just some of the content that you may have learned. So I'm going to start with our first question, um, and this will take about two minutes. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the current standard of care for bladder cancer, including staging and grading in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question, again, for those of you who are live streaming, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of new and emerging treatment approaches for metastatic bladder cancer, including targeted and immunotherapy treatments. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the role of diagnostic technologies and precision medicine in predicting response to metastatic bladder cancer treatment. 
Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to ask questions and work with the healthcare team to utilize their tips and suggestions to manage the side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain of bladder cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of participating in clinical trials for bladder cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank everyone for participating in these questions. Again, it will help us to see, um, again, best how to tailor these programs to meet your needs. So I really appreciate those of you who have so generously um, um, answered our questions. That's really helpful to us. And thank you so much. And now um, we're going to move on to the Q&A. I'm going to ask um, Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board. And we will take as many of your questions as possible. And I'm going to ask Michelle if she would uh, please uh, let all of you know how to ask questions. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star then one. And a question um, for Dr. Zhao. Um, how can I reduce the long-term toxicities of treatment? I, um, well, I think this is a, probably uh, related to chemotherapy or immunotherapy. Uh, when it comes to chemotherapy, um, usually um, we have to assess uh, patients' uh, blood work regularly with each cycle. And when it comes to uh, intolerable uh, effect on uh, your blood cell count or kidney function or liver function, uh, that that always requires uh, a doctor to take action immediately. For something like a neuropathy, uh, which is accumulative, and uh, especially in elderly patients, can be difficult to reverse, uh, that requires a more uh, attention and vigilance when it comes to uh, managing that. And there are limited uh, interventions that we can do uh, for patients who are at risk for neuropathy. Uh, there are uh, several trials ongoing to see which uh, drug potentially can help the patient to go through that without uh, getting a serious side effect, long-term side effect. I think there are those things uh, should be discussed with uh, with between patients and doctors. Uh, and uh, again, uh, there are a only limited options uh, in terms of intervention, in terms of medications uh, that we can offer in those settings. But none of them are great, unfortunately, at this time. Now, uh, immunotherapy is quite difficult uh, because it's unpredictable when it comes to long-term side effects. Uh, sometimes it could be uh, low thyroid function, sometimes it could be 
uh, adrenal gland in, uh, function uh, being compromised because of immunotherapy. Uh, for those reasons, uh, patients would need to take a uh, lifelong supplement of uh, thyroid supplement or uh, adrenal gland hormone supplement. Well, those are manageable. Uh, of course, uh, it, it's hard to predict, but those are manageable. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and another question for you. Um, how do I bring up new research and treatment approaches to my care team? Where can I learn more? You could comment on well, that, um, Dr. So. Yeah. Well, um, I think, again, when it comes to research, clinical trial opportunity uh, for patients with bladder cancer, uh, the accessibility of, to those options uh, can, be, can be quite variable. Uh, depending on which cancer center, uh, which city you, you, uh, you're going to. And uh, uh, there is a very good resources in American Cancer Society website and in National Cancer Institute website, uh, either cancer.gov or cancer.org. You can search for those options and see what, what is available uh, in your neighborhood. And uh, it will be difficult sometimes to uh, travel hours away to find those options. So. Uh, I think you can always ask your doctor, uh, initiate this conversation, say, what what are uh, research or uh, clinical trial options uh, for you at the very beginning of the visit? Uh, of course, um, it depends on uh, whether it's accessible to certain, uh, to you, and uh, there may be uh, some variation when it comes to uh, whether those are realistically uh, accessible to you. But uh, um, I think it, 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 will, it will be always a good thing to ask uh, to your doctor. Uh, and uh, I, I'm sure the doctor uh, are more than happy to share with you what they know. Uh, again, uh, uh, it's, it has to be individualized when it comes to this. Yeah. Thank you. And I, I guess clinical trials have really advanced the treatment of bladder cancer. Um, Significantly, um, is that is that correct, Doctor um, Zhao? I'm sorry, uh, Carolyn. Oh, could you say it again. Yes, yeah. oh, sure. Um, clinical trials have really advanced the treatment of bladder cancer, of many cancers actually. But participation in clinical trials has made a huge difference in the options available to people. Is that is that correct? Or yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I would say there, there there's a couple aspect of the of bladder cancer make it very challenging to. To, to be part of a clinical trial. Uh, in my personal experience with, uh, with, with running a few trials of bladder cancer here in, in, in Seattle uh, in my cancer institute, uh, I find it extremely difficult to, uh, to find uh, an eligible candidate uh, and get them enrolled in time. Uh, it, it's because bladder cancer always uh, causes some quite debilitating symptoms. And, for, and, and also cause significant impact in organ function, in, especially kidney function. And when it comes to uh, eligibility of, uh, to clinical, for clinical trials, those become a major barrier. Um, so again, um, the challenge is there, but uh, there are more and more uh, research opportunity even in community hospital uh, for, for those patients. So I think, I think uh, we have also seen uh, a very, very uh, promising uh, uh, a development uh, over the last few years that with new, all the new treatment regimen 
uh, option available to the, those patients. So uh, I think we're trying really hard to to get those trials going. But uh, when it comes to uh, enrollment and uh, and and being eligible for the trial, I think we we need uh, again be uh, to to see individual patient and assess uh, individual uh, eligibility accordingly. Excellent. Thank you. Very helpful. Um, mm -hmm. And a question from Ms. Bairdon. What foods should I eat if I have diarrhea? Mm. So there's a couple of different reasons we have diarrhea, but um, you need to know that the source of it. So talk with your doctor, why is this happening? Um, there could be an infectious process. There could be something, just a side effect if, with, from the chemotherapy or, or immune, whatever kind of therapy you're, you're having specific to your treatment plan. But in general, things that will help to address diarrhea with your diet are bringing in more foods that have soluble fiber. So there's two types of fiber in our diet. There's soluble fiber that we find oftentimes in, in bread. If you just get a loaf of bread, a piece of white bread or crackers, and you put a little bit of water on them, and you can kind of make a little dough ball out of it. Um, the other type of fiber is known as insoluble fiber. And insoluble fiber is in foods like broccoli, celery, um, cauliflower, lots of our fruits and vegetables, it's, it's crunchy. When we bite into it, it's crunchy. And so oftentimes when we cook it, it becomes more tender, but the food itself doesn't look that much different. And that, that's a really strong type of fiber. And each one of the fibers has a different function. Um, the soluble fiber, so the one like with the bread and the crackers, that with a little bit of water, it kind of doughs up um, in your hand, that fiber is used to be sort of like a glue. It helps, um, like a sponge almost, it takes on the fluid and it helps carry things through your GI system um, by binding them together. The other type of fiber, the insoluble fiber, the one that we find in our mainly in our fruits and vegetables, is more of a bulking fiber. Now, that type of fiber, the insoluble fiber, is the one we want to reduce. So we want to stay away from a lot of raw fruits and veggies, even some of the cooked ones, to be honest, um, and focus more on bringing in breads, crackers, white pasta, um, you know, refined oatmeal. I know it seems a little unhealthy per se because we kind of think of nourishment in our food in a different way. But during your course of treatment, there might be times where we're just addressing side effects. And so these diet modifications are temporary. Um, they're not long-term, but they're just to help get through managing that side effect. So we know it as a low-fiber diet. That's how we um, will oftentimes communicate it to patients. I'm going to give you a low-fiber diet. And so that you're going to see is almost eliminating or completely reducing uh, or, total, or reducing significantly your fruits, vegetables, um, uh, you know, a lot of the very fibrous grains that are in our diet and going more towards the refined grains and doing uh, maybe canned fruit um, because it's, peeled that the crunchy part of that fruit is removed and it's just the softer inside um, so that the insoluble fiber is removed and and that's oftentimes what we do another thing that we have to consider with diarrhea is hydration because when you're losing fluid um, 
through your GI system with diarrhea, you're also losing electrolytes. And so there is also a conversation about replacing your fluid and electrolytes. And the best oral rehydration solution, I think, on the market is, is like a Pedialyte. You can make your own rehydration um, solutions at home. You don't have to purchase them over the, over the counter. But if you're looking for one that you can just pick up at the store, Pedialyte is – um, is a very good one to go with. Now, Gatorades, Propel, that really replaces sweat and the electrolytes we lose in sweat. It's not the same thing as our GI losses. So um, you can either make your own rehydration solution or buy a Pedialyte over-the-counter and then ask about, um, you know, is a low-fiber diet the direction I should go or what's the cause of my diarrhea? Um, there can be many causes for diarrhea, and so you just want to make sure um, you understand kind of what's happening while you're making these changes, and, and then that will make it easier to, to kind of follow through with those suggestions. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, and Dr. Um, Zhao, a question for you. How do I best prepare myself for bladder cancer treatment? General question. So. Yeah. Well, um, I think it's most important to learn about what this treatment is about, how this treatment could affect you uh, from your doctor or from the, either, uh, from the RN, from the nurse who take care of you. Uh, before you start this treatment. Uh, I give every patient of mine a print handout uh, of what to expect in terms of side effects. Uh, I will often, because the side effects list, the list of side effects is very, very long, depending on which regimen we're talking about. And sometimes people get overwhelmed and they, they worry about everything could happen. But I often uh, go through this with them and my, myself. Just tell them what most common side effect to expect. I highlight a few, because not every aspect, uh, not every side effect will happen to every single patient. Now, uh, those are things it, it will be very helpful for you. And the other thing is, we often hand out a patient uh, a booklet or uh, also a magnet, including, especially uh, for the for the what is most serious side effect or symptoms that they need to let us know right away, uh, including fever, diarrhea, shortness stress, all that. So uh, we have those uh, uh, information uh, with, for patients uh, prior to getting this treatment started. Um, a lot of times, um, patients would have to figure out them uh, just by getting this started and realizing that some of them uh, is more uh, affecting them than other. So that's why the, every every visit uh, before treatment and following the treatment will be very important to go over those with, uh, with doctors. Uh, again, there's probably not a whole lot uh, other than knowing what you're doing and knowing what side effect to, what side effect to expect and knowing what to do with when side effect happens, for example, diarrhea or uh, fever. Uh, and for self-care, of course, when it comes to diarrhea, we often ask patients to try Imodium. Uh, unless there's some other concern about infection, that Imodium will be a good thing to try. Or just hydration, um, you know, drinking, uh, do their best to, uh, to be able to have a uh, regular meal and drinking plenty of water. And if any question that could not be uh, con uh, handled at home, always give, a, give doctors a call and uh, be evaluated in the clinic and even getting an infusion of uh, IV hydration. So that will help patients go through this more, uh, more smoothly. 
Oh, thank you. Excellent. So when before we conclude, I just want to ask each of our speakers to just um, provide a takeaway for, um, for Dr. I'll start with um, Dr. Sao and then uh, Ms. Bearden, just to sort of take away in terms of what you'd like people to remember from today's call. So Dr. Sao, if you'd like to go first. Yeah, well, um, cancer diagnosis is so, it's such a difficult uh, situation. And uh, and I think every patient would have uh, difficulty handling those uh, situations at first. So it's always important to to speak with doctor to also go to the uh, reliable resources to gather information instead of a uh, Google and uh, going to uh, some website that you know, with some you know commercial uh, incentive uh, and uh, information. And so I, I strongly recommend everybody uh, uh, being proactive and searching uh, cancer uh, cancer.gov and cancer.org website, and including the the Beacon website if they have any resources and links. And the other thing, of course, is to to uh, know your uh, know your options uh, before uh, and know know exactly what stage your cancer is by talking to the doctor clearly and knowing your options. Then uh, don't be afraid of asking uh, research uh, options or second opinions if you are uncertain about this. But also keep in mind some 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 situations require uh, urgent attention, requiring urgent decision making. So those things are very important. You do not want to. One thing I, I always tell my patient is, you do not want to wait months to make a decision when it comes to bladder cancer. You do not want to wait for second opinion uh, only to confirm what do you want to do uh, if you had to uh, wait a, a four or five weeks to make that decision because uh, sometimes those are not a luxury we have when it comes to bladder cancer. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Ms. Bearden? Yeah, I mean, just to echo, um, you know, the healthcare team's here to help you. And, um, you know, no piece, no, no fact or experience is insignificant. I mean, I always tell patients, I know the questions that I know to ask, but you need to tell me things in addition. So if I'm not asking it and it's happening, tell me so that I know. Sometimes they'll tell me something, and then I can connect with another healthcare provider and say, hey, I know they met with you this morning, but they forgot to tell you this. So use your healthcare team. Use any um, resource you can to connect with them. I mean, some hospital systems have the email system, like a portal um, make a list, have somebody with you who is a second set of ears, um, and know, collect people's cards where you are. Um, names get confusing and, and who you met with, it's very overwhelming. And so to help you kind of keep it organized, I always tell patients, okay, put this in a safe spot, put it in the same spot. And I've had people carry around Ziploc bags where they just put cards in, and, and that way it's not a bulky piece of you know, luggage they're carrying around. Um, but just know your healthcare team, know how to access them, and don't hesitate to access them. Um, they want to help you. They want to help you soon. And so the sooner you get with them, the better, and sooner they can help you. Excellent. I want to. I really want to thank our speakers. You've just been phenomenal. This has been an amazing uh, 
presentation. I have to say, um, really, all of our speakers have been amazing. And I also want to thank our participants for asking such good questions. So this has been a wonderful call. I have to say we've done these programs a number of times, but this particular one really um, seems to have brought out really the best in everyone. And so I want to thank you all for just being so terrific. Um, and um, in sort of wrapping up the call, I just want to say a few words to all of you, um, I realize that some of you have not yet had a chance to ask your questions um, and that we have many more questions in queue. And so um, I would ask you all to um, to take, if you asked a question, please take the question back to your training healthcare team. If you haven't had a chance to ask your question or are thinking of a question to ask, go right back to your healthcare team because remember, they know you the best. So this is a good place to get information, but indeed it, what's really important is that you all um, go back to treating healthcare team with the information you've learned today, and 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 use that information um, with your healthcare team in terms of how it applies to you and what how how you can get the best information possible. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I do not want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with bladder cancer, any type of cancer. I want you to know that you're now part of a community of support. And for this particular program, we highlighted the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network and Cancer Care um, and the American Cancer Society and various um, places where you can get information about more information from the um, cancer.gov, uh, National Cancer Institute, um, and so in terms of clinical trials and information that would be helpful to you. So you'll be getting all that information, of course, um, tomorrow in the SurveyMonkey that you'll receive about the evaluation of the program, but you also get all those resources. It is very tempting during this pandemic, of obviously, for people to feel a bit more alone. Um, that's normal, but we do want you to know that um, there's a lot of resources out there for you, credible resources. As Dr. Sao said, we want you to go to places that are credible, that we give you as a list to go to. Those will really be wonderful resources for you in addition to your healthcare team and your institutions you're going to. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participating. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.